we'll record a little opener for me and Adam and then mm-hmm. I'll just bring you in um, and we'll just go from there and then we'll probably talk for like a half hour or so and then that'll be it sounds great <laughs> cool right here we go Welcome to episode two of Keeping On Track. I'm Bradley Williams, and uh, this uh, other gentleman whose dulcet tones you may or may not be able to discern from my own, as we've found when we visit certain countries, is Mr. Adam Heath. I mean, every time I do a project, doesn't matter with, with who it is or from what part of the world, they always say, oh, you sound just like Brad. And I've, I've never personally... <laughs> Consider us to have that similarity, but yeah, it totally throws <laughs> totally. people. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> um, so this week we're going to be talking to. Um, well, actually, you know what, Adam? Why don't you introduce him? Our guest for this week. We've got. I mean, we've we're week two, and we've already got a new feature, which is like guest of the week. This yeah. is amazing. It's exciting. Um, is it just because you didn't feel that we had enough to talk about? We needed to bring someone else into the. To be honest, I think we're not that interesting. We'll get boring quite quickly. So we've got to find people that have got some interesting stories to tell. Okay. And I know that uh, our guest this week has definitely got some interesting stories for us. So our guest this week is uh, not only one of our long-term fellow collaborators, filmmaker extraordinaire, director, photographer, sound designer, musician, the lot. Uh, but when Brad said to me he wants a guest... I immediately thought we need someone who's had a very, very different experience watching movies than, than us. Uh, and there's only one man for that job, Mr. Kirill Tesla. Hello. <laughs> How was that for an intro? Oh, great. Yeah. I think, I think also, I don't know what came first. I think uh, I also volunteered. Maybe not volunteered, uh, begged. That's actually true. Kirill was the first person, was the first person I sent the podcast link to. And he was only 15 seconds into listening to it when he wrote back and said, I'll be on it. Yeah. <laughs> Careful what you wish for. Careful what you wish for. I was like, if you ever need a guest, you know. There you go. That's how fast things move. <laughs> yeah. That's it, man. But, um, I, love, I love podcasts. And I was like, it's a little, uh, little dream of mine to be on one. So this is my yeah. debut <laughs> Well, podcast. We like to make wishes come true, don't we, Ed? Oh, amazing. Straight um, away. While we're speaking about accents and, and myself and Brad sounding identical, <laughs> apparently, uh, we should probably mm. just note that Kirill is from Australia. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've spent a lot of time in South Africa as well, so it's yeah. a bit of a... <laughs> what, what is it about this accent? Why do people get so confused by it? Um, literally, every again, every every person I've met and worked with has always asked me, oh, Kirill, is he from is he from New Zealand or Australia or South Africa or all these different countries? And, and no one can ever pick the accent. Um, so for the for the benefit, you've all had thirty seconds now to guess. Uh, for for the benefit of the audience, Kirill, where were you born and where did you grow up? Uh, the good old motherland, Russian Federation, <laughs> or USSR. Actually, it was USSR when I was born there. Wow. This is weird because you don't sound anything like your stereotypical 80s Russian villain. Oh, right? no. There's not a hint of Gary Oldman about you. <laughs> and I think that's what throws people off. <laughs> um, I think, I think we're going we're gonna to discover later, but I have uh, grown up on a lot of American movies. Yeah, well, half so... of them. <laughs> <laughs> which, which brings us. <laughs> so um, we are. Uh, 
we're trying to do a thing each each session, each podcast session, where we try and relate our topic to a film. Mm. And um, the, there is a film this week that I do want to talk about, but I'll come to that later on. Because what I want to do is I just want to jump straight into it, Carol. Yeah. Is that one of the the stuff the subject for this week is um, poorly authored content or the you know storytelling in an improper way with mm. with, uh, with content. And uh, you, you've got a lot of experience in this, haven't you? Oh, because uh, growing up, your father had quite an interesting um, parenting technique, didn't he? Oh, yeah. he's. Um, I think it's kind of a style that he developed um, over the years. I think it was uh, out, of, out of necessity, really. Um, so he... Um, he worked abroad for uh, many years, so I think about like he was away for about five or seven years actually mm-hmm. um, before we kind of made the move as a family to UK. And um, he wanted to send send some of the you know the best films back to uh, Russia, but uh, he couldn't afford many tapes, so he would um, just buy one once or three hour tape and then try to put as many movies onto one tape as, uh, as possible. But some movies are a bit too long, so he would <laughs> edit them <laughs> live as he recorded them. <laughs> so <laughs> we would get about five movies in a three-hour tape. Um, and some key bits would be cut out. That, you know. So for years, I have watched movies um, that were about 40 minutes long. <laughs> edited, edited by my dad, um, based kind of on what he thought was uh, good bits. <laughs> so, um, but what were what were some of the movies that your dad uh, gave you the uh, the father's cuts of? Um, I think the most notable one, which I have watched since and recently, I think it was in the last six months. I thought uh, it was on Netflix. I thought I'd treat myself. And watching full was uh, Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what's what were some of the revelatory moments for you watching Jurassic Park? The the well, what was essentially the first time round? Oh, well, yeah, definitely. Um, the the one bit I didn't realise. I mean, the other thing you have to kind of appreciate is that I, we watched them in English. I mean, like we didn't know English, so we watching <laughs> movies in English. <laughs> <laughs> that were <laughs> cut by my dad. Um, so one thing I didn't realize is that the two kids that were in the park, uh, they were um, their owner's grandkids. <laughs> right. Okay. So, yeah, so kind of, uh, I just presumed they were just two kids in the park. <laughs> I, I, I had no idea why they were there. Uh, they sort of flew in in a helicopter. <laughs> I was like, this is pretty cool. <laughs> so <laughs> then um, they went and saw the dinosaurs and then and the, kind of the movie finished because he cut out all the conversation bits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for you, Jurassic Park was essentially a, a bunch of strangers appear on an island with two kids. Yeah. Then there are some dinosaurs at the end. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. So... All the all the kind of the key bits when they might have been talking about stuff and they were tense moments, he just cut them out. He's like boring. There's no action. <laughs> he wants to see that. So, 
Roughly, how old would you have been right when these films were being edited? So probably from the age of like nine to fourteen, I'd so say. It, it sounds a daft question, but did you know that he'd edited? You know, were you conscious that he'd done an edit and taken out half the movie, or did you just think that was the movie? Um, yes and no. I think I think it was clear that uh, somebody has paused because they were so badly edited. <laughs> There, there was no skill in it. It was just start and stop. <laughs> so you could like cut half seconds in and start, you know, half an hour later. Um, I suppose, but I never really given enough thought. I just, I just presume I trusted my dad. I, I, I thought he would put all the key bits in to uh, for me to understand the story. Maybe do his own cut, but actually as I discovered later, because my dad's got, uh, he's still got that editing technique as he watches movies now. <laughs> um, so he buys, he buys loads of action movies. And then if, when there's a bit that he would say a bit boring, they might be having a meeting, but it's a very important meeting, but there's no action. <laughs> so he would, and I've seen him do it. He would just fast forward that bit to the next bit that has action in it. <laughs> So that's what he was doing. He was like, they're talking, nothing's happening. Let's move on. Let's pause this tape. I could cram another five movies on this. This, I actually think we could start a whole podcast just about this subject because there's so much to unpack. Um, like, I'm interested in, in bizarrely, I mean, we're saying that he did it for necessity so we could send down five six movies on a tape which is kind of sweet he just wants you guys mm. to have all the movies that you can't get in russia mm. uh, but it's not just that he was doing that necessity that's kind of how he views films is that mm. exposition doesn't do anything for him he just wants the action oh yeah i'm fascinated by how many of those movies he's seen using that model still made sense to him probably and what what interpretation he took from them wouldn't that be in, wouldn't that be fascinating to, to try and uh, mm. as much as possible to do but analyze how much of the subtext actually translated to a to a, to a russian guy a 60 year old russian guy fast forwarding through bits he wasn't interested in but mm. still digested the story that'd be really interesting to know wouldn't it oh yeah i mean i can answer that question and it's absolute zero <laughs> 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 because when i used to live with mum and dad we would watch a movie and um, my mum, my mum's English is pretty good, but she does misses some of the bits. So she would then turn to us and say, like, what was this bit about? And dad would translate to her. So I'll sit quietly and wait for him to translate. And it's not just close to what it is. It's sometimes completely different to what the conversation is, like complete opposite. So I would imagine if he skips bits and then just <coughs> watches the action... At the end of the movie, he has no idea why things happened, um, what driven those scenes, and why it has, you know, the film has developed that way. I suppose the only movie that he possibly would understand would uh, would probably be The Matrix, maybe. Oh, no. <laughs> That's one of the movies where he, I think, he, he taped us. I can't remember whether he taped the movie for us or he showed us the movie using the fast forward style, you know. And I, I presume you can you can understand the confusing bit, you know, maybe the bit when he takes the pill that was, you know, that was lost. So we we had we had no idea about what has happened in the Matrix until years later. So it goes from Trinity at the beginning, and then suddenly Neo's fighting a guy in sunglasses. 
Yeah. <laughs> only, <laughs> only the best bits. That's brilliant. I just wonder if your dad is the greatest editor that's ever lived. <laughs> that's some skill, because he, he's um, editing live. He's deciding um, as he's watching it, this is going to mm. be boring. I can feel it. Yeah. Far forward. <laughs> And stops it in time for the action. It's amazing. He's, he's probably the only person to watch The Irishman in like a one hour space. <laughs> <laughs> well, since it's. Uh, is there a lot of action in it? In no, The Irishman, no, there's there's about 20 minutes of killing, I think, and then there's oh. maybe some fights, and that's about it. So, yeah. I, I reckon he wouldn't have bothered at all with that movie. <laughs> <laughs> what are some other highlights that you can remember? What other movies. Um, has he famously kind of edited down when you when you were kids? Uh, we watched um, uh, we watched some inappropriate movies that we probably shouldn't have watched, like um, Predator. Ten minutes long. Um, I think half an hour, maybe half an hour for you. <laughs> there's there's a lot of action in Predator. <laughs> just watch the whole final third, third act of the movie. Just yeah. Um, I think I think the bit he the only bit he skipped was. Um, I think the planning stage at the beginning. I, I don't think I ever seen it in full. Right. When uh, I think it starts off when they drop him in. Have you guys seen the movie? When, I'm shaking his head. <laughs> <laughs> when they're in a jungle. Yeah. Um, uh, that's the that's the bit when he get dropped in a jungle. That's uh, that's the bit I've seen. And till, so so for you, Predator begins with a man, a skinned corpse, hanging upside down from a tree. That's where the movie <laughs> yeah. begins for you. Yeah. <laughs> No well, idea tag- what it is or why it's yeah. there or who these men are. Just yeah, okay. I have no idea. Yeah, fantastic. Um, uh, what else have I seen? True Lies. Okay. So I've seen I've seen that, and I think that the middle bit was uh, edited out. I think yeah, heavily. So so your your version of True Lies begins with Arnold Schwarzenegger on a mission, then randomly he's on a horse fighting mm. terrorists in a skyscraper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, no idea who Jamie Lee Curtis is or why this little girl's hostage or anything like that. Yeah. It's just jumps. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> isn't, um, isn't this interesting, though, when you think about some of the challenges we face, Brad? Yeah. Because, yeah. because this is, although we're laughing about it and it seems unbelievable and hysterical, this is the, the ch- one of the challenges we face when we're making training videos, right? Is, is we're constantly talking to 100%. clients about if you lose your audience and they fast forward, skip, you know, just to get to the end to say they've watched it and tick a box, uh, your message is lost entirely. So totally. you have to you have to recognise your audience and make it compelling. Yeah, um, I think Kill's Dad might be a, an extreme example of that because I'm sure not many people jumped through the movie quite as, as he would, but but he wasn't he wasn't engaged. Clearly, wasn't engaged. Wasn't no. Himself. And I think that's the other part of the coin is, is, is that the message has to be engaging and it has to make sense because if you have people that do the opposite, you have those people that will watch every second of it, are they actually getting anything from it or are they getting the equivalent of a long-form fast-forward where mm. then there's nothing there? Um, it's interesting because the, so the, so the movie for this podcast that I wanted to kind of use as our case study beyond... Kirill's amazing. Genuinely, <laughs> I want to get my hands on these versions of the films. Like, I want to see these versions of the films. Um, but the, the film that I wanted to kind of use as a case study was um, Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon, um, which Kirill's probably seen about 15 minutes of, <laughs> and Adam's probably not seen any of. He's probably seen the trailer. Um, uh, but the movie itself, uh, for anyone that's not seen it, is, is, is uh, essentially 
and this is this is the irony is I'm not 100% sure what it's about but it, it's <coughs> essentially a guy who is a I think he's a Shaolin monk or some sort of monk of some kind or warrior and he's employed by some sort of shadow government agency to go to an island and enter a contest where there's a man who used to come from the same monastery as him who now has a school of people that he's training and fighting <clears throat> and there's there's potential that he's maybe got weapons or or missiles or something on the island that no one's sure about and for some unknown reason they're not able to storm the island and no one's allowed to take guns on the island so they send Bruce Lee in undercover with two other generic western characters to fight in this tournament and secretly spy on what's on the island and that that's kind of what the story the story's about <laughs> and the reason that 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 fits into this model is because it is genuinely a movie that makes very little sense it's actually heralded it's heralded as a classic um it's been deemed as culturally historically and aesthetically significant which is true mm -hmm. because at its core the movie is an expression of chinese culture and i think it's all about the philosophy of uh, jeet kundo which is bruce lee's style of martial arts um and so the movie is conceptually trying to prove a point and it's it's the movie that launched kind of cemented bruce lee's um hollywood career albeit very short because he died a few months after the film was released but um as a narrative form it's just absolute chaos it makes no sense whatsoever it's just kind of like there's this whole scene when um there are the three main characters so you've got lee You've got, which is Bruce Lee, you've got a guy called Roper, played by John Saxon, and a guy called Williams, played by Jim Kelly. And uh, they're all on boats. And this, the movie's been on for like 10 minutes. And the, these guys are all on these small little boats. And then it kind of goes like, that sort of <laughs> flashback. And you see each reason why that person's there. So randomly, you suddenly find out Bruce Lee's got a sister that was murdered by one of this villain's henchmen, who's like this white guy that she cuts and gives him a scar then you find out that Roper's actually a shady businessman that's got mafia after him and then Williams um was in I don't know whether he was going on holiday or going to the event and then he and then two racist cops stop him and he beats the cops up and steals the car and drives <laughs> off and and apparently that's enough reason to suddenly <laughs> want to go to this island and be in this movie and it's just absolutely ridiculous and it kind of for me cements this idea that like you were saying adam that if the if the narrative doesn't make sense people are either going to not connect with it or they're going to fast forward through it and i imagine that kirill's dad watching it and the dragon probably would have just fast forwarded <laughs> to like the last 20 minutes of the movie when stuff actually happens like all the stuff people remember the you know the, the bear claw the mirrors the, the scratches the bolo kind of crunching the guy in half all of that stuff that that end that's in the last sort of 20 minutes of the movie Mm. And, it, and it's just really crazy, isn't it? You know, I just, I, I, I don't understand how, well, I can understand it because we come into contact with it where you lose, you lose track of your objectives, you lose track of your characters, you lose track of your stories. And I can imagine this movie had similar situations, but do you have like, Adam, do you have, can you think of like any scenarios where you feel like 
that we've ever pulled that pulled pulled that out of the bag. Like we've gone in that situation and managed to pull it out because I don't think you can. I think when you get to that point, you almost lose track of it. It's impossible to make it make sense again. I, I don't know. It's hard to to say actually. You'd have to probably talk to the people that watch the things we make mm. and, and and understand what they took from it, because as well as um, losing people and not being engaging, probably. A bigger worry is that that folks will probably take some some key message away from what you've done, even if it's not the message you wanted them to take. Mm. You know, there are there are there are films that Kirill and his dad have seen that they've they've taken a meaning from it. It is just not the, the right one. It's a complete kind of mishmash, uh, and that's almost more dangerous, isn't it? Is is leaving ambiguity, and that's something I always try and try and take out. I don't like leaving ambiguity where someone could interpret it in a in potentially the completely the wrong way. Mm. I think it's okay to interpret philosophical kind of films and, and content, but if there is a message you're trying to convey, you need to make sure that's the one that's, that's taken away. Um, but I'd, I'd be interested to to ask people what they took away from some of the stuff that we've made. You know, it's an exercise. I don't know whether any of the, the organisations that we've worked for have done that. Have they ever really gone back and looked a year later about a piece of content, a video, and and asked people actually what they felt and what they took from it? That, that might be a really interesting experiment to do. Yeah. Well, I think what we find interesting as well, isn't it, when when we go out and film something or we write something and then we share it with each other. And that's almost a bit of a litmus test as well sometimes. Like Kirill, you know, he's been editing for us on a project recently and it's probably quite an interesting litmus test is that we, you know, Adam, you wrote the scripts. I've seen the scripts a thousand times. We filmed them together. Then we hand all that rough footage over to someone like Kirill and say, right, yeah. can you can you work on that for us? Um, and it's quite interesting to sort of see what you pull together. So, I mean, uh, from your side, Kirill, is that do you ever feel like you can't make sense of something as you're watching it, or do you sort of feel like as you're editing it, you're thinking to yourself, "This, this is this isn't making much sense," or do you ever kind of, or because there also the other argument could be that it's people mm. like you, like people in the post-production element of it. <clears throat> who actually suddenly are able to make it work because you've, you've got all the pieces mm. scattered on the table and you can kind of rejig them and, and remove and move things about to make more sense of it. I think so. I think, I think initially you look at stuff and you go, Oh my God, like this, you know, there's so much stuff and then you have to pick out the right bits and you almost kind of start making sense for yourself first. So, and then out of, you know, for instance, you might have somebody delivering a line three times and you pick the one that you think that makes the most sense, mm. you know, for you or, you know, or for the edit that you're doing, potentially, unless, unless it's been specified by, you know, by the director, they're saying like, I want this specific take. Mm. But when you have three or four takes on the table and you think like, right, I think by reading by the script, reading what um, kind of the narration is and, feeling the tone of of the video you just think like i feel like this needs to go in you mm. know so with someone's yes i suppose early early stages is it's very it's very tricky to make sense of it but i think it's a kind of process that comes it comes together over time you get a sense very early on if something's going awry if people don't understand what it is that they want to say um mm. And I mean, you you have kind of polar opposite issues is that you either have people who don't know what they want to say or people mm. have too much that they want to say or yeah. something very specific they want to say, but they don't know how to say it. 
in with Enter the Dragon, the there are two scenes in the movie that you feel were like someone wrote those very <laughs> early on, and you know that they stayed in the script the whole time. And one of them is right at the beginning. Lee's um, in this monastery, and he and this is actually one of the the only takes in the movie where I'm like, actually, this is amazing. A five six minute take with these two characters just walking and talking. And you mm. think to, they've remembered all of this dialogue. It's insane. Yeah. Um, and, My dad would have skipped that. 100%. Exactly. <laughs> that. That's gone, mate. That would have been a bit boring, <laughs> irrelevant. Yeah. Walking, talking. Where's the action? <laughs> but the irony is, is that the point is in that conversation, they have this whole thing about like, if you want to beat your enemy, you have to destroy their facade. Mm. And then right at the end of the movie, in the Hall of Mirrors, which is the, the other amazing piece of filmmaking, because... I don't know how they managed to film in a room full of mirrors without not being in a single shot. That mm. that's quite a, 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 a you know a, a feat. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, they even go to the point of using the audio, recycling the audio from that scene at the beginning of the movie in an echoed like kind of you must smash the mirrors to beat him. Like in case no, you miss the point because your brain has mm. gone to sleep for the last ninety minutes, they have to you have to remind you. Oh, there was a point to this. Mm. Um, so that that's quite an interesting thing, but. Um, but yeah, I think that sometimes people think if you bookend it with a message, then that's great. Then people will take away. But I think if if it's not making sense in the middle or you're, you're garbled in the middle, mm. people will lose that. <laughs> and so I think that businesses really need to focus on what messages that they're trying to share. What are the objectives that they're trying to achieve when they are putting content together, whether it's film or um, PDFs or e-learning or whatever it is. I think that narrative is so integral and i know we're going to be biased right because narrative is our is our form that's what we like but you can't just make something look flashy and interesting and that will make that will give it substance because it's not true oh absolutely i think when we started out we were uh, naturally uh, considered ourselves filmmakers and we were we were asked to make films and make videos and that's what we did mm. folks need a video we make a video um, and we quite quickly jumped into write a script film it edit it in the last year or two is when we've really started to, to, I guess, earn the right with some of our clients to spend a bit more time developing content. Mm -hmm. And that's where um, it probably sometimes appears a little bit overkill. How many conversations do we really need to have about the key message? But it, but it, it's everything, right? Yeah. There are projects <laughs> we're working on at the moment where we've had, you know, hours and hours and hours of development meetings where we've just talked through the subject. Let's let us really understand your business, what you're doing, yeah. the challenge you're facing, the thing you're trying to change, and all that kind of prodding and poking of well, why why don't people already understand that in your organisation? What what understanding have they got, and where has that come from? And all that kind of investigation is is what enables us to make a powerful video, right? But it's it's the legwork you have to put in, mm. the kind of the glitz of a of a script and then going and shooting something is is you'll earn that at the end. But to begin with, we need that that time to develop and understand and get under the hood of the kind of problem. Mm. I think pre production is a key and uh, talking from an editor's point of view and uh, you know when when you're shooting on set, if if that work isn't put in, it's very hard to sometimes to decipher what like it makes the process way, way harder. You know, and shooting like even shooting personal projects, and like looking back over the years, and there's shoots where I've done no pre-production whatsoever. I've you you turn up uh, both on set and um, you know in in the editing room, and you think like, oh my god, I should have you know I should have spent like as much time prepping for this mm. as 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 shooting it. 
and and the times that it has you know you put the effort in and you done you done the the work before that it it seems to run way way smoother pre pre production like you say there's that planning that preparation and cuz cuz then when you have to pivot you know as we all know even on the most um, elaborate, expensive, high-end film sets. You have pink pages. That's a thing, right? You know, even some of the greatest films in the world were rewritten the day before. Stanley Kubrick was walking around the set of The Shining with a typewriter, changing dialogue left, mm. right, center. But that's but it's okay to change dialogue, to change, um, to change the format, to change the approach, as long as the meaning and the intent stays the same. Yes, I, I, I guess it's supporting the meaning. You have that mm. vision, you have that message, and you're just imagining better ways to support it and hold the whole thing up, which is yeah. just completely fine. I think if yeah. you're fundamentally changing what what you're doing, that's a bit of a, a different problem. But definitely, and and that and that because that is the thing is that I think that that's what we want people to understand is it is okay to make changes. You don't once it's not set in stone, but but you have to, like you say, Adam, you have to have that fundamental element that remains the same. And then the other side of it is, especially with film, there's a certain point where it's locked. You know, you can't, unless you go back and refilm, you can't change what was said. I mean, you can do cutaways and you can drop in dubbing and ADR it and, and change some of the dialogue, but you can't physically manipulate, well, you can, but it's costly. You can't physically manipulate someone's mouth to make them say different words. So you have to have the coverage and you have to be able to cut around it to make that work. And we've done that in the past, but you can only do that so much before you start to have a completely different film. And, uh, and so I think that there's, there's almost sometimes there's that element of trust that comes in. Cause but I think that's maybe the other part is people sometimes get a bit cold feet, don't they? When you get near the end of something and you're just about to launch it, there's that sense of, oh, is this right? Have we done it properly? Have we, you know, do we need to change it? No, no, trust yourself. Trust. I think it was um, um, Tracy Letts who gave Greta Gerwig um, some, some advice on the set of Lady Bird. And she said, oh, I, I, you know, I wrote this script. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about that. And he said, listen, trust the person you were when you wrote this. And, and I think that's the point, isn't it? We need to trust, whatever content you're creating, you need to trust the person you were when you come up with that. Trust the person you were when you developed that. Because you're a different person now, you've gone through it, but you need to have that trust and that faith to know that what you're creating was right and is right. Because, um, and that's a scary thing sometimes, I think, for a lot of people. And, and I wonder whether you feel that that maybe features in a lot of this as well, that, that kind of to in and fro in and and oh, I need to check it. I need to make sure that this person's happy with it and that person's happy with it before we release it. Uh, do, you, do, you, do you agree, disagree? What, what are your thoughts on that? You made me start thinking about some of these projects that might take three, four, five months to realize or longer. You know, there, mm. there might be literally a requirement. It could be a year that you're working on something to develop a, a campaign or a product for someone, in which time they've kind of realized perhaps they weren't ready. You know, when they started, they actually, you know, I'm thinking about one of our big clients through the process of two or three months of, of creating their content. They'd they'd actually kind of done the thinking they hadn't already done by the time we finished the video. And they'd realized, oh, actually, what we thought we wanted to do was change, it's morphed. So uh, and you might need something different by the end. So there's a kind of that's something else to, to kind of balance, I guess, is, is knowing that. Uh, once you've committed and you're starting down that path, you, you hopefully have a solid enough vision that they can carry you through the course of creating that content. Mm. Um, but yeah, that balance is a very hard thing to strike. 
I do wonder whether people maybe jump into projects without giving it enough thought to know, you know what, what I really want to do. I was just going to say that, and I might regret saying it because it might do us out of work. So we have to be, you know, careful about yeah, what we're yeah. saying. But that is true. There are there are definitely cases where you can too quickly jump to. We've got this thing. We've got an idea. Let's make a video. And and as I said before, through the course of making a video over only a couple of months potentially of developing the idea, writing the script, shooting it, you actually realise we weren't quite ready. Actually, mm. we actually hadn't given enough time and thought to that kind of. Um, need that message we need to communicate um, and that I, I guess feeds into the idea that yeah a, a video is a kind of delivery mechanism for that message but the message needs to be needs to be watertight you need to know what you're doing it's too it's a little bit too easy maybe in, in this day and age to have a, a fabulous idea for a new initiative in your organization and, and within 24 hours wanting to be started to make a video mm. um, and actually you need to be sure about what you're saying why you're saying it the impact you hope to have the, the, the reason that you need to do whatever it is you're doing mm. um, and, and then start down that course of actually making content. And there are many times where we've picked up the phone to one another and, and asked ourselves, why are we making this video? There's, I mean, mm -hmm. we're happy to make it, but is it really necessary at this stage or have we leapt in a little bit too quick potentially? Mm. Adding to this, I mean, like, I think it goes with a, a question you answered me, well, asked me previously. And a lot of, like, I've done personal projects where people, approached me and said like i want a video done and didn't really have they just wanted to done like quickly they just wanted mm. to get it done and um the biggest thing for me i mean they might have had the idea but the idea wasn't developed enough as adam was just saying uh they said to me we want it done in this way and i was like okay uh, that's absolutely fine we can we can get it done but on the day they just didn't realize how difficult it would be to shoot we could have got a way better product you know if we just just slow down a bit, yeah, you know, and develop develop the concept a little bit, and yeah, because I think that's definitely another thing that that come we come up to in you know there is that you know the key takeaways are have development conversations. You know, we can we can be engaged or engaged any any vendor early in the conversation and kind of say to them like this is what we're thinking of doing. You know, have have some chats about it, get and then come back to it a month later to start pre-production when you know what you want to do. You know, I think that's one thing. You don't have to have a concrete objective in mind when you when you approach a vendor about this. It, it's good to have that developmental because also we can have that conversation. Say, well, actually, that if you want to do this or you're thinking of going in this direction, you're probably going to need to do this. This is going to probably take this long, um, and so you can plan for it. And then the other thing is once you launch into that pre-production don't rush it don't put unnecessary deadlines in place give yourself ask questions have that two-way exchange and kind of figure out a realistic timeline because people do treat it a bit like committing to a skydive like yeah okay i'm gonna do it so now just get me up in the plane and let me jump yeah. well actually you know we need to let's spend some time discussing it let's think about it when we're gonna go and, and really plan it so you can enjoy the actual jump itself and then you've got mm. something to be proud of at the end not just uh, oh i've jumped i panicked the whole way down i'm so glad that was over what's the point mm. of doing it you know let's have something to enjoy at the end of that and so it may take a bit longer than you might want it to do or it, you may have to make certain sacrifices along the way, but I think that the end product will be so much better for the for the for all of those reasons. And so you won't have people like Kirill's dad who are fast, <laughs> fast, fast forwarding <laughs> through it, or you won't have situations like with Enter the Dragon where you may have like one or two moments that are really amazing, but the rest of it is just complete dross. Why? Why is Enter the Dragon 
heralded and held in such high regard if it's such a kind of mess of a, of a story? What's what's holding it up? Essential philosophy is, like I say, it's bookended by its central philosophy, mm-hmm. um, and the it does for it did for kung fu what maybe like the fast and furious did for cars where everyone said now this is really cool i want to be a part of this it brought it made you had for for the first time in maybe forever you had a non-stereotypical asian lead in in a in a hollywood film it also introduced more subtleties of chinese culture into into western cinema and its effects can be felt today you know in the in the 25 minute version of the matrix that 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 kills saw, <laughs> you know it was probably quite evident that a movie like into the dragon just influenced that to no end up until this point in the 70s 1973 a fight in an american film would have been john wayne going why you pilgrim and sort of right hooking someone and they fly over a, a, a horse or something like that it's, it was very kind of sluggish this movie just completely just complain changed the whole landscape of 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 fighting and um, martial arts and and chinese culture within western cinema so that's uh, uh, why it's significant. I think it also trickled like way further than that. I mean, like we, uh, I've heard about Bruce Lee in Russia, and that was partly, you know, behind the Iron Curtain as well. Because mm. I mean, like, um, only in 1990 or 91, where we started to get way more um, Western cinema in, but still, like, I've never seen any of his movies. But then we knew exactly who he was mm-hmm. you know just like and i find i find it fascinating the fact that you mentioned bruce lee and you'd be like yeah you know he's amazing at martial arts yeah although although never never actually seen a movie or <laughs> yeah. or, or, or be or being able to see a movie he just yeah. that just went really far well, and it's crazy as well because i i mean just a just a closing really um the movie is essentially a bad james bond film that is, that is what it is. He's like a Chinese James Bond, and uh, I mean, the the film itself felt like something like Doctor No or the Man, or Men. The Man with the Golden Gun came out a year later. the 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 film itself is is a formula. It follows a certain formula that's irrelevant. But like you say, Kirill, it it's culturally significant to mm. the point where it turned Bruce Lee into an icon. Mm. Uh, and that and that's no small feat to do that but i think that's because it's like this is something people have never seen before and you watch it now it is tacky it's hammy like i say there are some technically amazing scenes that just as a quick aside there's um uh, luca uh, guadagnino did a remake of suspiria recently and there's a scene where uh, one of these dancers is getting um kind of being bewitched and her body's being distorted and broken and everything and when you watch the special features they had to film in that room and they had to digitally remove themselves from every mirror this was filmed in 1973 <laughs> and there's not a camera in sight and it's just amazing that 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 kind of level of wizardry and technical know-how went into a film that was essentially drivel but i think that but that kind of goes to show that sometimes you only need moments of genius to make something memorable that's again similar to some of the projects we do where we are literally pushing boundaries for organizations they might be working on a, on, a, on a video piece of content that stretches beyond what they would normally create and it is yeah. it's, it, you're you're very obviously stretching the limits but it opens up a world of opportunities suddenly suddenly we've done mm. something that's a little bit 
you know, different in terms of tone or look or feel, and it opens up this entire new world for that organisation. But it is a gradual process. There is a yeah. kind of stretching that's happening, where you take it from a very plain two people talking to each other, exactly the kind of scene that Kirill's dad would have edited out. <laughs> you moved move it from that to a piece of drama, <laughs> something a little bit more memorable, a little bit, a little bit more kind of engaging. You know, I've got I've got quite a bit of experience, you know, with teaching and try something a little bit different a little bit more engaging, more exciting, and people will lap this up, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. going to be way more learning is going to be happening. And that and that's it, really. I know that kind of flies in the face a little bit of what we've been talking about in terms of the content being right, but, they, but it is those two things together that make the best content. Is it memorable? Does it make sense? Can I mm. get something from it? Will I talk about it? I think it's important just to, to, to kind of round off the, the, the Kirill's dad story because <laughs> I don't want you to go away. The Kirill's dad did this, you know, in the 80s and 90s and that was the end of it because his editing continues <laughs> and is, is, is better than ever. He's more, more technically proficient than ever. So uh, Absolutely. Um, I, think, I think he had a, a creative break for about 10 years and then he's taken up uh, doing his own movies recently. Um, he's been he's been visiting um, many places in the last last five you know five <laughs> six years, and he's been taking his little camera with him. So he's been filming his holidays, um, and then originally he uh, asked me to edit his videos. So I've you know I've done I've done a few edits where he sat over my shoulder and kind of directed, and then um, he gone as far as buying his own Mac and downloading Final Cut to. Um, <laughs> To do to do his holiday movies, so I think he's at the moment he's done about thirty. Last time he was posting to me, he just he's gone a bit mellow. I think no action, just sort of like landscapes, scenery. You know, yeah. I think I encourage him to be like, come on, Dad, put a bit more action in. You know, maybe <laughs> uh, maybe you're walking through the streets or so. You know, um, but yeah, but a bit he, of parkour. Yeah, he's combining the two things now. He's not only editing, he's also behind the camera. So he's, mm. uh, he's filming, directing and editing. So maybe he's more sensitive now to, to create to the content and in terms of the, the intent of the image. So now he's more sensitive mm -hmm. to, to all those poor filmmakers whose work he's been bastardizing for, uh, for decades. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Maybe he's just a bit low on budget. I reckon if you could get Jason Statham in to uh, star in his... Isn't it funny how his, his editing career is the reverse of ours? We all started like filming ourselves running around on the streets, doing yeah. nothing, and we're building up to try and want to film Hollywood movies. Kimmel's dad started editing Hollywood movies. <laughs> he started with Bond. He started with Jurassic Park. Yeah. Down to holidays in Norfolk. Like, so. he's, he's gone yeah. from Steven Spielberg to Mike Lee. That's what yeah. he's done. <laughs> Bless him. Cool. So, right. Brad, can we, before you say goodbye, because mm. I, I feel like I want some um, repeating features. Yeah. But there's some sort of structure to this. So we do need the Brad Williams score for Enter the Dragon out of five. <laughs> oh, and you man. gave four to Contagion. Contagion, yeah. High, high I, know, score. I think I'm probably going to give Enter the Dragon two and a half. Two and a half. Uh, I'm not going to let its um, history and its stature intimidate me into <laughs> katowing and giving it a higher mark than it deserves. <laughs> And it gets, it gets two stars purely because of Bruce Lee and half a star because it had two scenes that impressed me. <laughs> Other than that, in hindsight, it's not a great film as I remember it being. So uh, I'm sure that someone's going to hate me for saying that. But, uh, but that's where I stand. 
exciting stuff. I look forward yes. to when we've got 10 or 15 films on the board. We have a little league table and <laughs> <laughs> <all your> reviews. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Cool. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. And uh, thank you for listening. And uh, we'll see you soon for episode three. Bye.